Good morning and glad to see all of you here today. Here's the thought. You in five years, me in five years, every one of our lives are on a path. Proverbs talks a lot about this, gives it some really good description. The choices I'm making now will determine where I end up in five years. And as we go through the book of James, he's very much saying the way we choose to live our lives truly makes a difference. The way we choose to spend our time, our relationships, our energy, our finances, our attention, the way we choose to spend our lives truly matters. And so for the next few weeks, as we go through the book of James... James is going to get straight to the point, and I love that about the book of James. The book of James is a great book to read. I encourage you guys to jump in with us, just like Heather was talking about, and you can jump in at any time in that reading plan, or like she said, just read through the book of James as much as you can handle. If you want to do a chapter a week, if you want to read the book over and over once a week, it's easy to read, just five chapters, five short chapters, but he jumps right in, and he's going to get to the point that the way we live our life truly does matter. And he's writing this letter to a group of people that are trying to figure this out. Now, these are the the very first Christians. As Jesus has, has died and he's risen again, and now the church is formed. This letter was written in what would have been mid Acts, the book of Acts, and now the church in Jerusalem has formed and people are scattering all over the place because persecution has shown up. And so in that kind of situation, you really have to decide, do I believe what I say I believe, right? And if I believe it, what does that mean in the way that I should live it out? Now, their time and culture and perspective would have been a little bit different because fortunately, you and I aren't running for our lives to be able to do this here today like they were. But yet, even though it was a different time and culture, we can find ourselves on very much the same common ground answering the question, if I believe this, if I believe that Jesus really did die for my sins so that I could be a new creation, then what does that mean about the way I'm supposed to live today, tomorrow, for the next five years, in the rest of my life? How should I be living if this is true? So if you're here today and you're a Christian, I hope that we get to take a chance to look deep within the mirror today. If you're not a Christian, I think you're going to identify with a lot of this as well because probably a lot of the things you'll hear today may be the reason that you aren't a Christian. And so I want you to stick stick with us as we jump in this second part of our series, Me in Five Years, as we look at the book of James. He's very practical. He's going to be very applicable. It's really simple. This is how you live it out. He's writing to people, like I said, that are being rejected because they've chosen to follow Jesus. And as we left off in chapter 1, really just as we got a few verses in last week, he, he gives one of my favorite verses where he says, hey, if you want wisdom, ask God for wisdom and he is happy to give it to you. That's Adam's paraphrase right there. But wisdom isn't just simply knowledge, right? It's not knowing just the answer to stuff. When we say wisdom, we're talking about being able to discern what God's will is in your life. So he's saying, if you want to know what God's will is in your life, he would love to tell you. You should ask him. And then he follows that up by saying, but don't doubt. You need to have faith because you can't be wishy-washy. In other words, you can't say, 
God, I want to know what your will is. And you got three options, really. You got yes, no, or maybe. He's saying, really, there's only one answer there. If you want to know what God's will is, you begin by saying yes before he even tells you what his will is. You want wisdom. You want to know what the will of God is. God wants to tell you what his will is. But don't be wishy-washy. If your faith is in Christ, you've already said yes to whatever the will of the Lord is. Having faith, I'm not talking about positive thinking. I'm talking about trusting in the will of God and being ready to obey. heard a quote this week that said this, Faith is not a lotto ticket, it's a work order. In other words, it's not a piece of paper. Oh, I hope I get it, I hope I get it. Having faith is saying, God, you sign this, whatever you want me to do, and I am ready to do it. Faith transforms our lives, but because of that, if we have faith, it requires action of us. It requires a response from us. So as we get deeper into chapter 1 and then jump into chapter 2 today, James is going to jump deep into this challenge. As he challenges everybody who calls themselves a Christian as he writes this letter, but it even applies to us today. He's saying that if we are believers in Christ, it should affect our lives. So change the subject here real quick. Let me ask you this. What if I told you today, I'm a superhero? Now, I know some of you are thinking, we already knew that, Adam, right? It's probably the physique that gave it away. You're thinking, oh, yeah, we're well aware of that. But for those of you who are still doubting, <laughs> huh? It's me. You couldn't tell with the glasses, right? I know, it's a great disguise. I took that one from Superman, and it works every time. Put glasses on, nobody will recognize you. But no, let me legitimately ask you this far-fetched question. What if I told you today, I truly believe that I'm a superhero? And I'm not talking about Bible man. I know the scriptures and I can help you out. I'm talking about, I legitimately believe that I have a superpower. All right, so this would be your last week at Rock Hills. I understand some of you would leave before the service is even over. But if I stood up here and told you, I sincerely and passionately believe that I have superpowers. It's going to lead us to one place. So let, let me turn the camera around on you a little bit. If you could have a superpower, just pity me here for a second. Would you rather be able to fly or be invisible? All right, I want you to think about it for one second. If you would rather be able to fly, raise your hand. If you would pick being invisible, raise your hand. Okay, Everybody watch out for the people that just raised their hand on invisible because I guarantee you they are mischievous. That is the only reason to be invisible and they chose it that quick. All right. So we're just going to go with fly here. All right. Just, just go with me. If I legitimately stood up here and told you, and when I was a little kid, I used to have this reoccurring dream that I could fly. If I could concentrate and I genuinely could fly. I don't mean jump off the stairs and for a split millisecond, I'm flying through the air till I hit the ground. I mean, I could fly around the room. Traffic's backed up on 281. I'm just going to fly home today after church, just legitimately fly through the air. 
what point does that lead us to? Either you think I'm absolutely nuts, maybe, maybe my wife would feel sorry for me and go, okay, yeah, I guess he really believes that. Everybody else in the room, there's only one place that leaves us to. You would say, okay, Adam, fly, right? That's the only thing that would cause you to believe that I had any sincerity at all, is if you saw me walk out those doors up, up, and away, and I fly through the air, right? Now, I know we're exaggerating talking about silly superpowers here. But the only way that you're going to believe my claim is if I show you and I prove to you that what I'm claiming is true is true. And that's where James finds himself and these believers find themselves. He's saying, you've been changed by Christ and you're surrounded by people who are trying to figure out what this message is all about, up, up, and away. You need to show them that the change, the transformation within you has truly occurred. If you're claiming that a supernatural God has transformed your lives from the inside out, prove it. Because the world around you is watching. So, Like I said, James gets down to business. He's not just trying to make everybody feel good. James gets right in people's business and says, Hey, listen, if God has transformed your life, there should be evidence of it. So in what ways do we prove it? James is simply going to echo much of what Jesus taught throughout the Gospels, much of it in the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to say, If Jesus has changed my life then the way I prove it is by living my life in this way, the way that Jesus told us to live our lives. As a matter of fact, Jesus even makes a really bold statement. In John chapter 14, verse 12, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Now, if that's what James is basing this challenge on, hey, we've got to live the way Jesus called us to live. We can do what Jesus did, and we can even do it greater. I mean, there was one of Jesus. There's a whole room full of us, right? So I'm going to end up here in James chapter 1, and then I'll get into James chapter 2. And there is so much good stuff at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. I mean, it was hard to narrow it down into what do I pick out of these chapters to talk about. So please, I encourage you to pick up James this week and see what the Lord speaks to you as well. But James chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 19. And I just want to read through his challenge here at the end of chapter 1. It says this, Understand this, my dear brothers and sisters. You must be quick to listen slow to speak, and slow to get angry. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires, so get rid of all filth and evil in your lives and humbly accept the word God planted in your hearts, for it has the power to save souls. Verse 22 here, listen to this. Don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the word and don't obey, it's like glancing at your face in the mirror. 
you see yourself walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are only fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. So James is giving this bold call to action. He's saying, if you call yourself a Christ follower, it should show in the way you talk, in the way you think, in the way you treat other people. You should be visual evidence to the resurrection of Christ because of the way you live your life. And he ends by giving this example of widows and orphans, how we should care for those around us who are in need. And I want to say that is an example that he's giving. It's not the example necessarily. It doesn't mean that every one of us are supposed to go to China and adopt an orphan, although some of us are and some of us have. But for all of us, there are people around us who are in great need, no matter what your need may be, because he's speaking also to people who are in great need. He's saying, look at the world around you and let everything you do be a reflection of Christ to those around you. James is asking us to take a hard look in the mirror. And I don't just mean a mirror like, guys, uh, you know, if you have a mirror like mine that's got some water splatters on it, you know, and that sort of thing. I mean one of those nice chick mirrors, right, that's got the, the illuminated ring around it and it magnifies. And you can see all the way down into the bottom of every pore on your face. James is saying, let's take a real hard look at the way you live your life. And this applies to us in America because it is culturally okay for us to call ourselves Christians. I mean, you may have people at work that roll their eyes at you, but in our culture, it's just fine if you go to church and you call yourself a Christian. But James is saying, if you call yourself a follower of Christ, you should really take a look at the life you live and how you live it. James is saying that your life should be the evidence and proof. We say it here at Rock Hills this way. Love God, love others, help people find and follow Jesus. In other words, the way I'm living should be a reflection of me loving God and my life should be evidenced by loving others. The way I live my life should help other people find and follow what I have discovered. Jesus. Jesus says something very similar. He says, Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Right? He goes on to tell his disciples, they will know that you are my followers by your love, the way that you love people. And he even addresses people in Matthew 25 where he's saying, hey, a lot of you talk a good game. You can say I've, I've done this and I've done that. But he's saying a lot of you never did it. Right? You didn't feed me. You didn't clothe me. You weren't there. And Obviously, he's not talking about himself being in prison or being starving. He's talking about all the people within the community. He's saying, if you truly want to be my follower, this is the way that you live it out. Paul says it this way, saying, if you're a follower of Christ, 
Here's the evidence that everybody should be able to see in your life. The evidence is the fruit that comes from our lives. Your life should be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. When I look at your life, when you look at my life, that is the evidence that people should be able to see around us. If we call ourselves a Christian, we don't get an exemption from this exam. If we call ourselves a Christian, he's saying every one of us, this should be evidence in our lives. Now again, if you're not a Christian, this is probably a lot of the reason why. Because you've known people who've called themselves Christians. You may be familiar with church settings. And to go back to our example, you're surrounded by people who say they can fly, but you never see any of them fly. So why in the world would you believe that? Right? People go collect in a building every week and they sing about flying. I'll fly away, you know. And they talk about flying, but none of them ever fly. And that can be a tragedy in our culture and our generation. When we have people who say we love the Lord and we follow the ways of the Bible, but then they look at our lives and they don't see any evidence of a transformed life. I dare you to become what you say that you believe in if we've trusted Christ to live our lives this way. James continues in chapter 4 as he challenges those who follow Christ. He says, My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus if you favor some people over others? For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can sit over there or else sit on the floor, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Again, here's another A example, not the example, right? But he's saying you ought to examine everything in your life. And we can say here at Rock Hills, no problem with the good chairs, right? We're all sitting on the hard school plastic chairs. You know, there's no good ones to give away. Actually, our staff meeting had a meeting a few weeks ago at another church. I took our staff on a field trip just to see what a church had done with the space. And we sat down in their chairs. I was like, Oh man, I'm going to get spoiled real quick because they were padded and cushy and it was really, really nice. I'm trying not to be envious. Uh, but he's, he's challenging us here saying there shouldn't be any evidence of discrimination among us. All right. And he's talking about rich and poor here, but we can apply this to every part of our culture that we face today. I can be guilty of this, right? Maybe not even intentionally. But I might just be a little bit more generous with one type of person than another or be a little bit more likely to be a friend to one type of person than another because some people are just easier to connect with than others, right? Or maybe even if we don't admit it deep inside, we have a tendency to push certain groups of people aside and be attracted to other groups of people. James is saying if we follow Christ, we have to examine every part of our hearts. And if we're honest, when many people in our culture think of Christians, I don't know if the first descriptions that they would give are, 
Man, those are the most loving, non-judgmental, welcoming people that I have ever met in my life. But I hope that can be true of us here at Rock Hills. We say here, come as you are, and that's exactly what we mean. Said whether you're rich and in fancy jewelry or you're poor and in dirty clothes, you're all welcome in the good seats, (laughs) the good plastic seats we have here, right? You're all welcome here. He's telling people how you treat people matters. It shows our hand. The way we treat other people shows what's happened within our own minds and our own hearts. It shows our motives in the way that we treat other people. And James is setting us up because he's about to get to the point here that if we're people who believe in the mercy of God, the fact that we didn't deserve God's grace, but God gave it to us anyway, then how can we look at somebody else and decide they don't deserve God's grace or treat them any differently than the Lord treated us? Let's look, chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. It says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose your brother or sister has no food or clothing, and you say, Goodbye, have a great day, stay warm and eat well. God bless you, right? I'll be praying for you. But then you didn't give the person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Unless it produces good deeds, It is dead and useless. In other words, James is saying, if Christ has changed your life, again, it should show. It should be evident. Now, I do want to press pause here real quick because this verse could seem contradictory because James just said, faith by itself isn't enough. Now, if we flip over to Paul in Romans, here's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith, not obeying the law. So here's Paul. Paul just said, you are made right. Your salvation comes by faith, not faith plus Works. Not, in other words, you trust your life to Christ, and now if you do enough things, he accepts you. But James just said, faith alone is not enough. So here's where this leads us Paul is speaking about what leads up to salvation. You are made right because Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to deserve it. It is the grace and mercy of God given to us by faith alone. So Paul is right in saying that. It is by Christ's work alone. James is speaking all through the book of James about Now that you are a believer, you have been made right. Your eternity is set because of the grace and mercy that God has given you. It should show and it should be evident in your life 
by the works, the fruit, as Paul calls it, that come out of your life. Now, when I say the works, for some of you, that can be a church trigger, a religious trigger, right? Because you automatically think works means, okay, I got to do this three times. I got to do this, you know, and it's just this list of things that you have got to do. And that's not what James is saying here. He's not saying if you do X, Y, and Z, then you are good enough for God. He is simply saying works because your life is changed. The works, the fruit, the reaction that comes out of your life should be an example of Christ to all of those around us. He's saying that there's a balance between faith that has transformed your life and then the works that now produces out of your life because of the faith that changed you. It can't be all one or the other. He's he's saying you can't believe and then it not show to anybody and you just can't go around doing good things but not believe in the grace or mercy of God. If you do all of one or the other of those things, you've missed the point altogether. He says these two things fuel one another. You're changed and because you're changed, this is the way you live your life. So you're changed, this is how you live. You're changed, this is how you live. It's a rhythm that James is calling us to live in with our lives. Now, there are many theologians who've studied this much deeper than the simple answer I'm giving you here today. And if you want to know more of the deep explanations of this, just go see Al Hasler after service, and he will be happy to give you the extended answer. Uh, I look at it like this, though. In some sense, like riding a bicycle. And... uh, Riding a bicycle today is much different than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, I would just go ride anywhere I wanted to, right? As long as I was home before dark, I was good. Uh, You know, I didn't have pads and a helmet and all that kind of stuff. We just went on adventures, right? I mean, today, you got to stay in the driveway. You got all the pads, the helmet. You've got an EMT that follows you around everywhere that you go. We want to keep everything safe, right? Right. But when you ride a bike, there's some things that I don't like even today as an adult riding a bike. And that's hills, which we have too many of in my neighborhood. And that's distance. And that's any cars within 20 feet of me, right? But even if you're a real cyclist, uh, like Stuart Green that goes to our church here. If you're a real cyclist, there are things that you don't want on a bike ride. Stuart has literally ridden his bike across the country and back and uh, experienced so many cool things riding his bike. But obviously you don't want a flat because you can't ride your bicycle if you have a flat. You don't want a broken chain because then you can't make it go. And you don't want a broken pedal, right? I mean, if you've just got one pedal that works, Stuart's probably the guy that could still make it go, you know, (laughs) like that all the way across the country with just one pedal going. But for the rest of us common folk, Right? If you just have one pedal, you're going to make it go, but then you're not going to have the follow-up push. And that's what James is saying here is he talks about faith and works. He's saying it's like two pedals that balance a bike. Your faith is what has changed you and drives you, and your works are how you live it out everywhere that you go. And as one pushes, the other rests. And they have this rhythm that push back and forth within our lives. So James is reminding us that in order for the gospel to be carried out and displayed and change the people around us, it's faith 
and its works. It's your belief followed up by your action. It's what's happened within you that's now oozing out of your life to everyone around you. As he goes on through verses 14 through 26, he's going to wrap it up with three types of faith that are genuinely challenging. He tells us this, and in these three types of faith, I will say two of them are negative and one of them is positive and dynamic. Uh, Two of these will lead our lives. We're talking about that path in five years. We're going to be in a frustrated spot. However, if we live our life in the third positive way, we might just be amazed at what God will do in our lives. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 18. Someone may argue... Some people have faith and other good deeds, but I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. The first faith that we see here that he's already referenced is a faith that is dead. Faith by itself, if we're just saying God has transformed us on the inside, but we don't go on to do what it says in verse 18 to display that, he says, your faith is dead. Now, it's faith alone that justifies us by the work of Christ on the cross, but it's dead if it doesn't come to display within our lives. In other words, if it's lip service and not lifestyle. Maybe we've known Christ and we've memorized scripture and we can talk, 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 talk about it. Unfortunately, you may have known some people like this. They can quote you the scripture, but their lifestyle has no evidence of it changing their lives. That kind of faith is dead. It's like a bike with one pedal, a car with no engine or a phone with no battery or as Paul and Jesus kind of put it, it's like a tree with no fruit. There's life there because Jesus has come within us, but there's no fruit that is produced. As a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus gives us a great illustration of this as he walks up to a fig tree that's alive. It's got leaves, but it's not producing fruit. And Jesus curses that fig tree. He says, you're dead. That faith That kind of life is dead. The second kind of faith that we see, which is even tougher, we see in verses 19 and 20, it says this, You say you have faith, but for you believe that there is one God good for you, he says. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without deeds is useless. The second kind of faith we see here is a faith that is deceived. He says, you believe, good for you. Great. It says, even the demons acknowledge the deity of God. That's pretty scary, right? To be put in that same comparison. They are aware of God's existence, but they have no surrender to him as Lord. They have not let God transform them or lead them. They have knowledge, but no change. They have no love for Jesus. 
In other words, Jesus is not your get out of hell free card. Okay, I'm going to say a prayer at the end of the service and I'm good. If we want God to work in our lives, we have to let him transform us from the inside out. They have rebellion, but no repentance. Charles Spurgeon said this, the grace that does not change my life will not change my soul. There's a third kind of faith that we see here as we finish up this chapter. And James is going to go on to tell his listeners a story, reference a story that they're all very familiar with, and that is of Abraham and Rahab, two people that we see in the Old Testament who took a bold step of faith, and he's going to say that action, that display of those works, put their faith on display. Here's what he says in 22 and 23. You see this faith You see his faith, he's referring to Abraham. His faith and his actions worked together. His actions made his faith complete. And so it happened just as the scriptures say. Abraham believed God and counted him as righteous because of his faith. He he said he was called a friend of God. Faith isn't believing in spite of the evidence Faith, as James is talking about here, that is alive, is obeying God in spite of the consequence. In other words, God, I don't know where this is going to lead, but I am going to choose to obey you. So, today you've all got an imaginary mirror in front of you. You're all claiming that you can fly. You need to take a deep look within that mirror. And ask yourself, if you claim that Jesus has transformed your life, can those around you see it? You're made right by the sacrifice that Jesus has made for your life. But that should be reflected and displayed to all those around us. Now again, like we talked about the first week, this is about progress, not perfection. We're all going to have times when we have those moments when we don't display it as good as we should display it. We repent and we ask God to help us do better next time, help us to be better parents, help us to be better neighbors, help us to be better friends. We're all on a journey to where we're going to be at in five years. But I want to challenge you with this. If you could let God work from the inside out of your life, where could it take you in five years? If you said, God, I'm going to give you my yes to any way that you would want to display this work that you have done within me. We're going to close the service today with baptisms. Uh, We've got one that is signed up today, but I encourage you, if anybody else would like to join us, this is a step of action, right? That's what baptism is. Baptism is saying, okay, I'm going to take a step of faith to display to everybody else that there is a work that has been done within me that I'm now going to share with all of you to say that my life has been changed, to put it on display. That's exactly what baptism is, and we're able to join together as a church and celebrate that. So if there's any of you here today that you think, yes, today's the day that I need to, that's the step, that's the first step that I need to take in putting my faith on display We've got extra clothes out there that you can change into. We've got plenty of towels. uh, And Jamal's going to join us up here in just a moment as well.
for our baptism. But I want to ask you, as you take a look in that mirror, have you let God change you from the inside out? Would you pray with me? Father, as it says in Psalms, I pray that you would search our hearts, that you would know us from the most inward parts of our lives, God. Lord, as it says in John 3.30, I pray that you would help us to decrease, that you might increase. Father, I pray that we would be a people and a church and families and individuals. Father, that when people look at us, they see the light of Christ. They see the redemption and the goodness of God. Lord, would you do that work within our hearts? Maybe there are some of you here today that you've been trying to be good enough. And today, maybe your understanding has changed. It's not about you being good enough because none of us can ever be good enough. But today, you might simply receive the grace and the mercy that Christ has given us. If that's you today and you want to pray this for the the first time or the thousandth time, just to reiterate your desire and your need for God, you can pray this with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I give you all that I am. I thank you that you sent Jesus to die in my place and that by the penalty he paid on the cross, I can be made new in you. Lord, I surrender to you today. Now, that can't be my faith for you. If you need to cry out to God, I want want you just to take a moment in your own words to lift up your heart to God and ask him to meet you right where you're at. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence here today. Lord, we rejoice in the fact that you change lives, though we don't deserve it. In Jesus' name, amen.